JB week one in the books, an extended week one, we'll call it, and we'll get to a lot of the action. But I do have to tell you, hats off to uh, Hobart against Alfred on Friday night. I was watching that score a little bit, and uh, great job by the Hobart Statesman for sure. Uh, you should be proud there, and oh boy, you're reaching for something, which always scares me. I just, appre- I just appreciate it on like my 30th anniversary of, of my first week one as a player that they uh, put up 36 points. Wait, was that your yeah, like jersey like, number? my face. Yeah. That was my old jersey number. Um, this huh. was a thing for the, uh, the Wounded Warrior Project from about 10 years ago. This is the, the week we're leading up to 9-11 where we always do sort of a special memori- uh, memorial for that. Uh, so, you know, shout out to the troops and, and everything. But seriously, great weekend of action, Frank. About 112 games, I think, from Thursday night to Sunday afternoon because there was a weather delay. So four days of football to cover. We're going to try and do it as fast as we can. Well, I, I do want to say one thing. I, I've got to put this on in the process. So everybody knows that, you know, Coach Iserni and I have had a longstanding feud uh, with my picks on uh, D3Football.com. And I've become his favorite bulletin board material. But i got to say one thing. You know, D3 football has pretty much given an entire bulletin board already this season to RPI. Uh, I think it was Ryan Tipps picks against them last week uh, in the top 25 team uh, to go down. I did not make that pick. Uh, then Pat Coleman on uh, Around the Nation on Monday morning called them basically the uh what was it the most overrated, most overrated team? team wow top 25 yeah that's that was a little little subtle <laughs> you know the, the sad thing here uh, overall is that basically or maybe not sad if you're a, an rpi fan uh all they keep doing is winning and winning and winning as we continue to pour it on and so Coach Isernia, I, I guess the Bolton boards fully don't need me to say anything this week about your team as you prep for Carnegie Mellon, a game that I will be attending on Saturday as long as they allow me uh, in the gates. Who knows after last year what they'll allow. But, uh, you know, JB, let's get to uh, the tasks at hand. This is Season 15, our first crunch time show of Season 15 of In the Huddle. JB, a lot to get to in the show. Uh, Crunch Time is uh, one of our most fast-paced or fastest-paced shows. How's that for grammar in English to start the season here? But uh, as always, uh, we've got Crunch Time. We've got MVPs. We'll talk a little bit about Week 2, but that'll be our Friday show, our live show. We'll also probably include an interview with a student-athlete guest, if I had to guess, uh, from uh, maybe a Week 1 success that's looking to a big Week 2 matchup here. We'll uh, work on that as the week goes along. But... As always, my friend, and you look you look pristine right now. So our video tech, you know, technical difficulties we've been having, I, I think we're solving them as we speak here. Well, don't don't do all that, but uh, I'm going to give you the opportunity to give our give a thirty thousand foot view of week one. 
Yeah, so like I said, we had four days of games. Um, some some turned out a little differently than we expected, but for the most part, some good action. Now, of course, there's always going to be you know the 63 to nothing ball here and there, but for the most part, some really interesting games. I think, Frank, from what I could tell, for the vast majority, the home sort of favorite teams won the big matchups this weekend with maybe the exception of, of Linfield having to go on the road and – Man, Huntington gave them a good run for their money, and it doesn't get any easier for the Hawks, who have to take on Birmingham Southern, who also won this weekend. Huge playoff implications down the road for both of those teams, depending on who wins that game. We'll talk a little more about that later. But overall, great action, 100-something, 10, 15 games, and uh, it's really great to be back in, into the, the, the full thing of football season. Well, those difficulties and my inability to take myself off mute are uh, rearing their heads again a little bit here, but I think we're, we're going to be okay. Yeah, exactly. So uh, before uh, we completely lose ourselves here, uh, literally and figuratively, let's go to crunch time for week one of the 2022 fall college football season in Division Three. I say fall like we're ever going to have another spring season again, but hey, who knows? So uh, we like to be specific on these things. Anyway, uh, Westminster at Delaware Valley, and this game started kind of ominously with only a safety from this bad snap by Delaware Valley uh, in the first half as the scoring at Westminster took a 2-0 lead on that. Then in the third quarter, four minutes into it, Nasir Morgan gets a 22-yard pass from Louis Barrios. It becomes a 6-2 game in favor of Delaware Valley. Then another mistake here. Uh, watch this uh, punt snap go awry for Del for Westminster. Excuse me. Delaware Valley tracks it down and gets it to the two-yard line. The next play is Tamir Barksdale scoring on this two-yard touchdown run. That made the score uh, kind of unreachable at that point. 22-8 was the final in favor of Delaware Valley. Again, a 2-0 halftime lead for uh, Westminster, but that disappeared. The defense held Westminster to 32 rushing yards, two sacks, two interceptions for that defense, a 40-yard fumble recovery, as we saw, to set up the second touchdown of the afternoon. Frank, one last little thing I want to throw in there about the Westminster game. Uh, Bryce Butler, uh, who was a really standout freshman uh, last season, and in, I guess in the spring, so uh, really sophomore, but he was down on the field for an extended period of time during the Del Val game. Um, checked in on him. The word is he's going to be okay. The heat was pretty bad at that game, um, and so he had leg cramps that locked up both his legs, got some IV fluids, and is apparently doing great. So Bryce, we're happy to hear that you're doing better, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing him back out on the field again soon. Okay, moving on. Let's go to Springfield hosting Western New England and the pinch and saw game back on Friday night where it belongs folks I, I kind of uh, wish I'd gone out to that one I didn't catch it in time we were making all of our plans but let's uh, look at Dante Vasquez with this really hard 31 yard run 12 minutes into the game and it made it 7-0 in favor of Springfield then in the second quarter Jacob Sylvester gets a 27 yard run of his own to make it 21-0 we skipped one there uh, because we've got a lot of action to cover in the second quarter, though, just before halftime, Western New England's DeAndre Harris gets a 16-yard touchdown pass from Tyler Millerick to make it 21-7. to 
in favor of Springfield. But Springfield puts it away as David Wells gets a four-yard touchdown run halfway through the third quarter to make it 28-7 Springfield. They would go on to win 42-14 as they outgained Western New England 509 yards to 231 and had six different players with a rushing touchdown. Then the game I attended on Friday night uh, instead of that one is uh, FDU Florham at Merchant Marine. The battle of two new head coaches in that game. Dan Curran of FDU and Kroll of Merchant Marine Academy. In the second quarter, about 48 seconds into it, Quinier Edwards gets a four-yard touchdown pass from TJ Brown to make it 7-0 in favor of FDU Florham. But just before halftime, Merchant Marine ties it up as Jaden Colon gets a 16-yard touchdown pass from Jeremiah Wong. It's 7-7 at halftime because of that. In the third quarter, FDU Florham's Chris Demedio gets a 37-yard field goal. That's 10-7 in favor of FDU Florham. And then they'll add on to that four minutes later as Castorina gets a six-yard touchdown pass from T.J. Brown. 17-7 there. That was the final score. As Brown went 27 for 34, kind of quietly uh, he put on that efficiency. 225 yards, two touchdowns. Their defense gave up 140 rush yards, which is pretty good against a triple option team, and got an interception in the game. Uh, defensive back Thomas Joyce had nine tackles and an interception for Merchant Marine Academy. To round out our uh, features in region number one, Husson visited Mass Dartmouth in the first quarter. Dante Avila Santos gets a 12-yard touchdown run, and he was energized as he scored and after the score in this situation, 7-0 in favor of Mass Dartmouth. Then they get another touchdown with 11.51 left second quarter as Antonio Brown gets a 25-yard touchdown pass from Avila Santos. It's 14-0 in favor of UMass Dartmouth. Husson wouldn't go away quietly, though, as Dom Wilson got a five-yard touchdown pass from Nick Visser to make it 14-7 at halftime in favor of UMass Dartmouth. Third quarter, Dante Villas-Santos had a short uh, touchdown pass that you won't see here to Easton Coleman before this touchdown pass to Isaiah Cole to make it 28-7 from 37 yards out, and that would pretty much seal the deal. UMass Dartmouth wins 35-14. They had 558 yards of offense as Avila Santos had four rushing and one passing touchdowns. And Garnett from Husson had 15 rushes, 103 yards, and a touchdown. JB, I'll let you take whatever you want to take here, including the other scores from Region 1. Yeah, I mean, not really a whole ton of um, surprises or upsets really in Region 1. I will say, since we are using some props today, I'm going to give some props to these guys, the cadets of Norwich University, who um, really hung in there and gave Salve Regina, a, a team that many have picked to win the CCC, a really tough game. Um, sure, they, they only, uh, you know, they lost 7 nothing, but hey, credit the cadets. That, to me, was one of the more surprising outcomes in Region 1, and we'll talk about some other surprises in future regions as we cruise along here. Let's go. As I turn my page right on camera, how's that for everybody? <laughs> Region 2, let's get to it. Whitworth comes from Region 6 to Region 2 to visit Carnegie Mellon. And uh, boy, th this game didn't go uh, the way a lot of people thought it would. Uh, in the second quarter, three minutes into it, Carnegie Mellon's Chris Hughes gets an 18-yard touchdown pass from former guest Ben Mills to make it 7-0 Carnegie Mellon. Six minutes later, 
Chris Hughes again. You, you heard it on Around the Nation. Why not see it on In the Huddle? 99-yard touchdown pass from Ben Mills. I'm just trying to kill time here as we go down the field and way down the field and still going down the field probably at 14-0 in favor of Carnegie Mellon. Whitworth would get a touchdown and a field goal before halftime and make it a 14-10 game, but in the second half, Carnegie Mellon pushed ahead again. Trey Vasilidis gets a... 12-yard touchdown run to make it 21-10. to Whitworth would still fight, though. 28 seconds left, third quarter. Evan Liggett gets a 2-yard touchdown pass from Jaden Pruitt to make it 21-17. Still Carnegie Mellon. And then Trey Vasilidis again gets an 11-yard touchdown run. It's 28-17 Carnegie Mellon, and they put it away with this play right here. Pruitt. Dart over the middle is intercepted. Second interception of the game. And Carnegie Mellon is able to take this one to the house. Kevin Cook's 43-yard interception return for a touchdown. That's a pick six where I come from. Makes it 35-17. And that was the final as Ben Mills had 354 yards and two passing touchdowns on a night. Trey Vasilidis with 152 rushing yards, two rushing touchdowns. And a Carnegie Mellon defense, two interceptions, three sacks inside those six tackles. For loss. Next up, we're going to go to John Carroll at Washington and Jefferson. And the teams were tied at 7 7 at the end of the first quarter before Washington and Jefferson. Samuel Vissa gets a 22 yard touchdown pass from Colton Jones. 14 7 in favor of Washington and Jefferson, four minutes into that second quarter. Then, about uh, what, a couple minutes later, it's Tyler Sabo with a 49 yard pick six to make it 21 7 in favor of Washington and Jefferson. They were rolling here. They'd add another touchdown to make it 28 to seven midway through the third quarter, but JCU would come back. Tyler Mintz, a 45 yard touchdown pass from Joe Collins made it 28 to 14 with 250 left in the third quarter. Then 46 seconds into the fourth quarter, Tadis Tadarunas gets an 18 yard uh, touchdown pass from Joe Collins. I was just happy I made it out with the name there. 28-20 in favor of Washington and Jefferson still, but W&J does put it away as Justin Huss gets an 8-yard touchdown pass from Colton Jones, 35-20. That really did put things away there as that was the final score, 35-20. By the way, quality broadcast from Washington and Jefferson. I mean, like quality, like blimp-type uh, overheads and whatnot. I couldn't believe some of the stuff I was watching as I watched the playback. Colton Jones, 32 for 45, 358 yards, two passing touchdowns. WJ defense had three interceptions and five sacks. McVay from JCU had 116 total yards and one rushing touchdown on the ground. Finally, our focus games, Wittenberg visiting Cortland State. All I can tell you here is uh, clearly the graduation of Breeze Segala would have a negative effect, we thought, on Cortland's offense, and we were absolutely uh, wrong on that. Um, in fact, why don't we look at a one receiver in particular, and then we'll tell you about his quarterback. Uh, in fact, we're going to do a lap tracker here, and you'll see why. Lap, a lap tracker. Receivers left, play action, boys looking to air it out. He's got a man downfield, and has caught! Touchdown, Red Dragons! With three receivers stacked to the right side. Boys with a quick drop. Throwing near side for lap. It is caught at the 12. And he's run out of bounds at the 3. Delfano St. John to his left. Play action. They'll throw to lap on the near side. Caught at the 40. And he's basically denied much more progress. Bootleg. 
They got a lot of weapons already in that Boys offense. Boys in the pocket. He's getting pressure across the middle of the field to J.J. Lapp. That pass complete. Boys. Two-step drop, throwing over the middle. Lap is cutting, and it's caught at the 40 to the 50, and he's gone. 30, 20, 10, house, touchdown, Red Dragons. We'll see. Here's play action, throw over the middle is complete. Out to the 40, out to midfield, and wrapped up his lap at about the 42-yard line. Yeah. <laughs> His voice on first down, catch made at the 20 by lap, and he's dragged back a couple of yards. Single receivers to the outside. Boys looking downfield. Here's Lap. If he makes it, it's a record. He catches it at the 35, and he's dragged down at the 30-yard line. And there goes another record. First and 10, Zach Boys fakes the handoff. That pass complete and out of bounds to J.J. Lap. No, J.B., that was a lap tracker. Couldn't you tell from the nine catches and how many yards was it? 312 yards, two touchdowns from J.J. Lapp. I mean, we don't usually feature one player like that, but, you know, Zach Boyce with his 543 yards passing and four passing touchdowns, and then J.J. Lapp, at least we got both of them in the act when we did uh, that focus there. Uh, also, Gross from Wittenberg had 111 total yards on the ground, but, I mean, you know, reaching to... He kind of make light of it, what happened there, but at the same time, that's a strong performance from a team that we did not really know what we uh, see offensively from them. I think we know now. Yeah, and I, and I think I'm just going to call him, you know, maybe not to date myself more than I already have in the show, but like Zach, yeah, boys. I mean, he was on fire, 500 passing yards. I mean, what an impressive showing. Uh, Jerry Boy's son, former uh, head coach of, of Buff State, as we've mentioned in the past, Really amazing debut, and yeah, it looks like Cortland may even be potentially stronger than we saw in in 2021, which is hard to believe. So they kind of put the Empire Eight and the rest of the the region on notice. Elsewhere, Frank, I thought some of the the more interesting um, results. I mean, I turned on the Believe Bowl on on uh, Saturday night and saw that Rochester was up 21 to seven over Utica. Uh, they have a running back. I think his last name is. Papatonis, who broke the school record with over 300 rushing yards and had four touchdowns, but you know, credit the Pios, they came back and, and they won that one. John Hopkins won big, as we thought, sort of thought. They're going to probably be scoring 50 plus points a game every week. Uh, elsewhere, you know, Brockport won 27 to seven. Endicott with a 27 to zero win over St. Lawrence. And just for those watching at home, we categorize the regions by the home team. So even though Endicott technically region one team. In this case, we're dropping them in the Region 2 scoreboard because that was a home game for the Saints. Uh, nothing else really kind of jumped out at me, Frank, other than what we talked about earlier. I mean, RPI hanging on to beat Dickinson by by a touchdown, and they needed a late interception to seal the deal. But what else is new for RPI? They, they always seem to play to the level of their opponents, but they always figure out ways to win the games. And so for you know, people to kind of bash them, I guess I understand on one hand, but it's just that it, it's working for them. A couple of Elite Eights over the past couple seasons, they keep winning home games. Hey, it's, it ain't broke. <laughs> Ralph Icernia, if he pulls off another win of the Liberty League and a playoff run this year, somebody in an upper level better take him in an instant because he's got a special sauce there that I, I can't even explain after everything that we've witnessed and the thought about his team. We're, look, we may be wrong sometimes, folks. I get that, but... You can't be wrong this much after how many years of football unless something is really, really going on 
in a positive sense in this case for RPI behind the scenes. And that would be Coach Isernia doing it ultimately if that's the case. So keep watching the big game this Saturday. I'm excited to see it. As I said, Carnegie Mellon at RPI. Speaking about big games I attended, Muhlenberg at Mary Harden Baylor, number 11 Muhlenberg at number one Mary Harden Baylor at the time. And let's start things out with Jamal Hamilton, who uh, was dinged up in this game. He got a 54-yard touchdown pass from Kyle King to make it 6-0, a blocked extra point the cause of that score. But Hamilton did have, uh, I believe it was his left foot or ankle, iced up, and uh, he was on a trainer's table uh, in the first half. So uh, we'll see how he does for the rest of the season. Then Christopher Ardito, Muhlenberg actually takes the lead here with his one-yard touchdown pass from Joe Rapetti to make it 7-6. So the trivia question this year, did anybody have the lead against Mary Harden Baylor? Well, we know the answer will be at least yes for about two minutes as uh, Muhlenberg had that 7-6 lead. Afonso Thomas would add a one-yard touchdown run for the crew to give them back the lead for good. Still in the first, though, look at this punt block and recovery by, uh, wait a minute, that's Brandon Jordan? Um, more more on him in a minute, but um, the six foot six wide receiver somehow got on the special teams unit. Go look at our interviews to find out why. Then here is Will McClintock fully stretched out to reel it in from seven yards out from Kyle King to make it 20 to seven with 3.50 left first quarter. Then remember that Brandon Jordan guy I was just talking about? Yep, he finally got in the scoring act with a 46 yard touchdown pass from Kyle King. 27 to seven, six minutes into the second quarter. Before halftime, hey, how about some more Brandon Jordan? And this is a 15 yard touchdown pass from Kyle King. They just kept going from there. It's 62-13 final in favor of the crew. Kyle King, 19 for 28, 379 yards, six passing touchdowns to five different receivers. Brandon Jordan, 120 receiving yards, two touchdowns and the blocked punt. Then let's talk about Linfield at Huntingdon. This was just a crazy game. After the teams traded TDs early, halfway through the first quarter, Tyler England gets a 60-yard touchdown pass from Landon Cotney. It's 13-7 in favor of Huntingdon there, but Linfield would respond. Joel Valadez gets a 55-yard touchdown pass from Blake Eaton to make it 13-13 two minutes later. Still in the first, Colton Smith gets a 24-yard touchdown pass from Blake Eaton, so now it's 20-13 in favor of Linfield. We continue first quarter action, 2.16 left. Connor Bradford gets an 82-yard touchdown pass from Landon Cotney. It's 20-20 after one period of play. In the second, six minutes left, Blake Eaton gets his own 14-yard touchdown run. The quarterback makes it 27-20 in favor of Linfield. They add on to that before halftime, though, as Colton Smith gets his second touchdown pass from Blake Eaton, this time for 48 yards out. It's 34-20 Linfield, and before halftime, Huntington would have that lead back to 34-27. In the third quarter, Devin Murray gets a 23-yard touchdown pass from Blake Eaton, 41-27 in favor of Linfield. But wait, two minutes later, again, Huntington just wouldn't go away. It's 41-34, thanks to Connor Bradford getting a 39-yard touchdown pass from Cotney. And it's like back forth all around. And then suddenly the offenses got stifled. Early in the fourth quarter, Landon Cotney intercepted here by Des Phillips at the Linfield 16-yard line. So, you know, a chance there stifled. On the next Huntington drive, Cotney was intercepted here by Ben Baxter at the Linfield 19. So, one more chance. A little controversy here. Let's see. We'll slow it down as well as Landon Cotney on a fourth and nine 
gets eight and a half yards. The question is, was the spot a good one? You take a look, you make the call. It's a tough one to uh, decide. I lean toward yes, I think it was correctly spotted based on where he hit the ground, but I, you know, with our angle, you can't tell for sure. So that ended the last chance for Huntingdon. The final score, 41-34 in favor of Linfield. Both quarterbacks passed for over 340 yards, four passing touchdowns, and had two interceptions. Connor Bradford for uh, for Huntingdon had three catches, 138 yards. That's the game high, and two touchdowns. Well, you want crazy games? I got one more for you. You, you thought I was done with craziness? No, okay. come on, folks. Barry at Maryville, a, a game that normally maybe we wouldn't track, but come on, the way this thing went, Barry held a 10-7 lead after the first quarter, and that would be the only scoring of the half in the third quarter midway through it. Brandon Cade gets a 49-yard touchdown run. It's 17-7 in favor of Barry. Maryville would add a Luke Pinkston 21-yard field goal to get within seven. Then Steph Carter Jr. gets an 18-yard pass from Bryson Rollins to make it a 17-17 tie four minutes into the fourth quarter. Gavin Gray, though, the quarterback for Barry, gets his own touchdown with seven minutes left to make it 24-17 Barry. Kevon Samuels, he gets a 30-yard touchdown pass from Bryson Rollins to make it 24-24. Two minutes left. Are we going to overtime? We didn't see many overtime games uh, in this entire stanza of uh, games that we had. Well, no. 16 seconds left. DeAndre Wilson gets a 50-yard touchdown pass from Gavin Gray. That made the final 31-24 Barry. Wilson, 121 receiving yards and the game-winning touchdown. Cade, 112 yards on the ground and a touchdown. Rollins, 228 passing yards, two touchdowns for Maryville. What an effort by Maryville, a team that many people just write off in the USA South, but they really came to play. And Barry may have been looking ahead a little bit to their uh, Wisconsin-Whitewater game coming up in a couple of weeks with that performance where I think they should have probably one by two or three scores, they win late by one score. I was having flashbacks of the SAA spring season with all, all these, you know, really close last second games, one point wins, deciding everything. And this might be a little bit of a wake up call for Barry, who's trying to you know, get back to the top of their conference. Um, but interesting thing in Region 3, Dean Frank, and, and why I believe the Huntington Birmingham Southern game this weekend is so big is that now there's starting to be a little bit of a critical mass within uh, Texas. You've got Bellhaven now in Mississippi right next door. We've got Alabama with Huntington uh, as well. So I believe the winner of the Birmingham-Huntington game shot at hosting a first-round playoff game if they can run the table. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge out-of-conference uh, game for both teams, kind of a rivalry in-state for them. Uh, elsewhere in, in Region 3, didn't see a whole lot of other surprises. Uh, Randolph-Macon looked strong. Um, there were a few other games that were, you know, pretty much pretty much decided by halftime. But this weekend, Region 3 is going to have a lot of attention. Trinity, Trinity, Texas has a huge game against Wheaton. They're all on Saturday night. Region 3 is going to be the star of Week 2. Sounds good to me. I've got no problem with that, although I will not be getting down to Region 3. I, I will definitely be watching the action there. We've got two more games in depth to talk about, and of course we've got to talk about Wisconsin-Whitewater at St. John's. That was number four versus number five, basically, or depending on the poll you're looking at, ultimately. St. John's started with a 2-0 lead with a safety. Whitewater would get a 31-yard Nate Custer field goal, take a 3-2 lead, but the only other scoring in the first half would be with 2.45 left in the half, Alex Larson getting his five-yard touchdown pass from Aaron Sievens Severson, excuse me, 9-3 was the score at that point. 
Then in the second half, Whitewater's Tyler Holte gets a four-yard touchdown pass from Evan Lewandowski to make it 10-9 in favor of Whitewater four minutes into the period. Whitewater get another safety, though. A lot of self-inflicted wounds in this game to give St. John's the 11-10 lead back. 436 left third quarter. Zach Jungles gets a seven-yard touchdown pass from Severson. It's 18-10 in favor of St. John's. Then in the fourth quarter, Alex Larson gets another touchdown pass from Severson, this time from nine yards out to make it 24-10. Blocked extra point there, but Whitewater could not respond offensively. That was the final, 24-10. Severson, 25 for 34, 269 yards and three passing touchdowns, one interception on the day. The Whitewater offense committed seven turnovers in the game. As I said, self-inflicted wounds throughout the game by them. Then another barn burner of a game, Hampton Sydney visiting Wabash. At halftime, Hampton Sydney looked to have a good lead at 28 to 17, but the second half was a cardiac adventure. In the third quarter, three minutes into it, Liam Thompson gets a two-yard touchdown run to give Wabash uh, to get them within 28 to 24. Then in the third quarter, it's Hampton Sydney's Jamadiah Whitby with an eight-yard touchdown pass from Tanner Bernard. 35-24 in favor of Hampton Sydney. Wabash wouldn't go away. Cooper Sullivan, an eight-yard touchdown pass from Thompson, made it 35-30 with 5.35 left in the third quarter. Then Hampton Sydney responds. 35 seconds into the fourth quarter, David Byler gets a three-yard touchdown pass from Bernard. 42-30 Hampton Sydney. I think they're done. They've won it at this point. No. Derek Allen Jr., three minutes later, it's a 27-yard touchdown pass from Liam Thompson. 42-37, still Hampton Sydney's lead. But Wabash gets Liam Thompson's own 26-yard touchdown run. The QB makes it 45-42 in favor of Wabash. Wait a minute, though. Hampton Sydney with 6.07 left, still alive as Malik Frost gets a 19-yard touchdown. Uh, that's a run from him to make it, at that point, 48-45 Hampton Sydney. 46 seconds left. Donovan Schneider thought he was down, but he stayed on his feet to get a 15-yard touchdown run. Wabash back on top, 52-48. Then this is the final chance for Hampton Sydney. Bernard steps up, wings it out, and it's intercepted. The Little Giants are going to win it. Garrett Rose in his first game as a starter clinches the game with an interception. Garrett Mraz gets that interception. Tanner Bernard tried hard with his team to uh, pull what would and been maybe a minor upset to some people. Uh, I picked against them, basically, Wabash, that is, uh, and yeah. thought Hampton Sydney would get it. And the final score was 52-48. They combined for 1,153 yards. Thompson with 482 total yards, four passing, two rushing touchdowns. And Bernard with four passing and one rushing touchdowns of his own. Regions 4, 5, and 6, JB, excitement all over the place. you got a lot of scores to talk about here. Yeah, and I say I think really for the weekend, Region 4 had the most competitive and interesting games. If you just kind of look through, you know, briefly, you'll see the Rose-Holman-DePaw game was a three-point game. Hope came back to beat Aurora 38-34. Kalamazoo won by a touchdown. Kenyon won by a touchdown. Marietta won by one point um, over Dubuque. Uh, Augustana, same thing. A lot of close games. Baldwin Wallace losing to Mount St. Joseph's was kind of a surprise. And certainly one with especially JCU losing 
the uh, a second team from the OAC making it into the into the Pool C arena is going to be a little tricky later on down the road. On the on the backside, we saw you know some a little more lopsided scores. Uh, and Eau Claire had a pretty competitive game. Um, Denison pulled away from from Capital. You know, when the other game that was kind of interesting that sort of jumps out to me, Frank, is George Fox beating Redlands, who was the Skyac champ, and then Center hanging on to, to outlast Hanover in a game that had to be done Sunday afternoon just due to uh, excessive weather delays. I think it was a you know thunderstorms or lightning strikes or something, so they they had to pause the game near the top of the third quarter. They rescheduled it for one o'clock Sunday. I caught the the tail end of it, and um, it was a very exciting conclusion to a great weekend of football. Talk more about the OAC situation you just brought up in a second, but first I'm going to tell you that it's crunch time for week one of the 2022 fall college football season in Division Three. You know, a friend of ours, uh, I'm not going to name names here, had texted me uh, this week and has said, uh, is it time that you kind of uh, stop letting the OAC off the hook when they have losses like they had this weekend by Baldwin Wallace and JCU? And I said it's, it's mm. a relevant statement. I mean, you take a look at the standings in the OAC and you say to yourself, okay, you, you can't lose two games most likely in the OAC and expect to get through, especially if your conference struggles overall. Um, yeah. But, you know, Heidelberg makes it through. Uh, did, um, I'm trying to think, did Ohio Northern make it through there as well, I believe, with a win, the Polar Bears? Uh, but yeah, they were, the, they were the one team that actually had an overtime game, I believe, uh, <laughs> this weekend. They were the so uh, Marietta, yeah, they Heidelberg, they lost to Alma. They, oh yeah, uh, Otterbein and Wilmington. Those are the four. So uh, three of the teams that we thought would have pool C aspirations if they were to lose to Mount Union, uh, Baldwin Wallace, John Carroll, and Ohio Northern lose. And that really bodes poorly here for number one, somebody taking down Mount Union. Number two, a second team from the OAC making it through. Um, you know, they've got to do better than this. And obviously their out of conference season is over because they have a full round robin of nine games coming up as a conference. Yeah. So uh, this is not what you would call a performance that helps your criteria and pool C as a conference. So we'll see where it goes from there. But uh, this person is completely right. It's time to kind of call out what we need to call out in that situation, which is uh, a, a bad performance overall by a conference that thought they were shooing yeah. for a pool C. Yeah, and people might want to dump on me for saying this, but I honestly now I think the Liberty League is a better conference than the OAC. Just look at the the last you know this past weekend and kind of going forward. I'm just saying. Wow, um, let, let's go to your, uh, JB's Week One MVPs. Yeah, let's go to the week one MVP, Sir JB, um, and uh, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe it was, maybe it's a, a little bit of a pick. Um, you know, I, I had a feeling that uh, Zach Boys would get you know a lot of credit from D3Football.com, and once again, I, I try to mix things up a little bit with these with these picks, recognize some other student athletes, but you know, hey, look at that guy with the beautiful mustache, Kyle King, is is six touchdowns. That, that says a lot. I don't think any other player in the in the nation um, either beat or so. I think a couple of them matched that, but I'll well, I'll, I'll give my MVP to, to Kyle King, who really showed up in a in a top matchup uh, in in his first game. Uh, all right, and up next from the special teams perspective, I always love to you know, give some shout outs to the kickers out there. So Ryan Castle from Christopher Newport had to you know basically score all the points for his captains to uh, beat. Washington and Lee, it's second year in a row that they've done that. 
and they held held on nine to three in a, an interesting Saturday night game that maybe flew under the radar. Uh, but congratulations to Ryan, and then also kind of lost in the offensive fireworks of the Cortland Wittenberg game was senior captain Zach Thusen. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that right. He had something like 18 tackles. Um, amazing performance by him, and certainly, you know, we had Lap and yeah, boys, and all that stuff going off on the offensive side of things. But, uh, you know, Zach really brought it, too, on the defense. Corlin, I apologize for my co-host's attempt to be a lot younger than he really is with this whole yeah, boys thing he's trying. Uh, the one thing that he is going to match me on, not in age, but in uh, basically win-loss record right now, we both go 11-3 and for the week as uh, decent decent performance overall. Uh, I mean, 11 out of 14 games is a good percentage, but uh, some of our flyers fell flat on those. So uh, we'll see where we go in week two. We will give predictions on Friday. And we will also, like I said, have an interview, perhaps live, perhaps tape. We'll, we'll see where we come up with on this. Uh, but, JB, uh, last thoughts here in terms of your biggest surprise, your biggest disappointment from week one. Well, I think the biggest surprise might have been how bad some of the special teams play, uh, especially, I mean, Whitewater just looked completely unprepared for their matchup against St. John's. I mean, I think they committed seven turnovers in that game. That was a that was a big surprise um, to me. I really felt that they were the better team going into that game, but they just kept shooting themselves in the foot repeatedly. And now they have the defending champs flying up to Wisconsin. To, I mean, I, I, clearly I, I already hit one freezing cold take saying that St. John's may not be up to snuff compared to last year. They look pretty good in uh, grand scheme of things. They're probably in the driver's seat in the MIAC now. Um, and you know, once again, a potential you know, top seed if they can run the table. Whitewater might be in trouble, though, Frank. If they if they start off 0-2, which I think is pretty likely, and there are teams out there lurking like River Falls and Lacrosse who are just licking their chops to take down um, Whitewater, all it's going to take is one conference loss, and they're done. I don't think that they can get in uh, as a pool C, as a 7-3 and team. But maybe, though, with losses to two of the top-ranked teams in the nation, they could still overcome that, but it's going to be tough sledding for them. For me, surprise, Cortland's offense. I'll say it again. I just didn't see this coming, and if they continue in this way, the Empire 8 is no longer a wide-open conference in my book because nobody's going to match that kind of situation. I think Wittenberg's a good enough team that it's a comparable to some of the uh, facing uh, some of the teams facing them later in the season. So Cortland uh, right now is my surprise, my disappointment so far, or at least in week one. I would have to say Linfield. Uh, I I don't think Huntingdon is the team of teams, and Linfield in that flight down really couldn't shake them. And okay, maybe I've underestimated Huntingdon. I, I guess that might be one part of this, but. Yeah. I think Linfield has to show a lot more than that if they want to be a top 10 team. And, uh, you know, okay, it's week one. There's only so much you're going to learn from week one before the cobwebs kind of get knocked out and you get back to normal. But uh, something to watch as this season continues, although it looks like the Northwest Conference might not be that strong in terms of the undercard as Whitworth did not look very good against Carnegie Mellon in much of that game as well. So we'll see where this goes ultimately. Got to give Carnegie Mellon's defense a little credit for that. They're, oh, yes. They've really stepped up to be proven a, a pretty high caliber. And I think, as we said at the top, my big surprise, Norwich, I think yep. they, you know, 
they, they put um, they put the new Mac on notice. They're not going to be pushed around. They they really took it to Salve, who's a really strong you know playoff uh, you know bowl potential team. So I'm curious to see what the cadets have up next. I'm always excited to go see teams I haven't seen in a long time or ever. I, I, I have seen the cadets. They played at Merchant Marine a few years back that I saw that game. But it would be great to see them again. Um, I'm going to see Carnegie Mellon for the first time in ages. In fact, how long has it been? 1997, I believe, was the last time I saw in person Carnegie Mellon when Union College uh, flew down there and I flew with them uh, when I was uh, the Union College voice back when. 25 so, years ago, man. Yeah, so uh, that should tell you something. But uh, we've got a lot of other uh, teams that we might see for the first time, and we'll see what happens uh, with the schedule overall over the next few weeks. Got some uh, maybe surprises for you as to where I'll pop up along the way. We'll see you Friday. Enjoy the rest of the week, folks.